No surprise to any of us that we're not perfect, right? Yet at the same time, we don't like being told that we're wrong. That's a bit ironic, wouldn't you say? Like, well, no one's perfect. But if someone says, you're wrong, you're like, well, what gives you the right to say that? Uh, it's good for us to realize that there are things we are wrong about. Not that we've been wrong, but actually there's things that you are actually wrong about. And we need to remain in that teachable and humble posture where we can read the Word of God and be challenged. We can hear what someone says and take it to heart and be, um, I guess, constantly considering if we're living the right way, if we're thinking the right way, if we're thinking how God would have us. Because there is right and wrong. There is sound doctrine and there is heresy. Um, not all beliefs are, are sound biblically. And heresy is a belief that fundamentally denies the basic truths of Scripture. God's spoken the truth. He's established it. And heresy is not content to remain silent. Like God's spoken, he's given us his word. But heresy, it begins to, like leaven, infiltrate and permeate. As we'll see, it was even happening in the early church. And uh, we can be ignorant of things, we can misinterpret things, and we can go off the... Because if you have the wrong belief, you'll have the wrong practices eventually. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the passage. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that it's the foundation upon which we place our feet, that Jesus Christ is our rock. He is our Savior. And the words that he has spoken are true. And thank you that he was, is, and is to come, that he is eternal and awesome, and that we can worship you in spirit and in truth through faith in Jesus. And we delight, Lord, to read your word. We want to be challenged by it. We want to be changed. And we confess, Lord, that we have been wrong many times before, and we will continue to be wrong. But thank you that you show us the right way. You give us your wisdom and your guidance, and you fill us with your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill us afresh today to give us ears to hear and eyes to see, to give us hearts that love and rejoice in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to read today of a... Serious discussion that proved pivotal in the church, in the early church. And usually pivotal means that you're shifting directions. In this case, it was pivotal in that they continued to move ahead, straight forward in the gospel. Because there were many, I guess, temptations to veer from the truth. And one of them was to return to a gospel of works, which is no gospel at all. And I think over the years, we have personally, like churches do, um, can wander back and forth between legalism, which is working to obtain favor with God, thinking that you have to do something to please God, or liberalism, which allows, it uses grace and love to ignore or condone sin. That we're not repent, we're not brought to a place of repentance because there's grace and there's love, and so I don't need to repent. So we can kind of work, have you guys ever been that way, where you, you're without knowledge. God brings you. He gives you some knowledge. He brings you into the kingdom of God. And you begin with your knowledge to be a bit puffed up and thinking that others should change, that they're doing the wrong thing. And they should do basically what you're doing or your convictions or should be the ones they take to heart. Um, and we have, and when every time I say we, I'm saying I. I have because I'm a recovering Pharisee. Um, still, it, it's something that's in you. And the Lord is, is changing you. Um, 
we, we emphasize liberty to justify our sin. Of course, we don't call it sin at the time. But we say, hey, I have freedom. Rather than using freedom to reach others and to love them and to consider them as more important than yourself. We've struggled with personal convictions and we've wrongly imposed them on other people that they should be doing this instead of us living up to this standard that we're holding. We've discovered hypocrisy everywhere and we've judged it scathingly, but we weren't even considering ourselves. We've clawed at the specks in the eyes of others rather than considering our own blindness. We spoke when we should have remained silent and we remain silent when we should have said something. See, I, I totally fit with all of these. And God wants to bring us to a place where we're yielded and guided and directed by him. And uh, we desperately need the grace, love of Jesus Christ today as much as ever. And hopefully our eyes are more and more open to that. Praise the Lord for his patience, that he is long-suffering, that he takes the time to correct us and instruct us. Because without him, we would all be sheep gone astray. We would have no hope to find the truth on our own. We come to this place, Acts 15, verse 1. After Paul and Barnabas have gone on their first missionary journey and they've rehearsed to the church in Antioch the things that have worked, God has worked in them. The church rejoiced to hear that the door of faith had been opened to the Gentiles. And we come to verse 1 of Acts 15. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. The previous verse had said they stayed a long time with the disciples after discussing the things God had done on their missionary journey. And it was during this time where people from Judea came and they began to say, you must be circumcised to be saved. And it says that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension with them. Basically, they had a big dissension. There was a large dispute and it wasn't going away. You had two groups of people who had interpretations of what the gospel is and what the word of God required. And they were on opposing sides of the same question. And this message being shared, it was not only divisive, it was heretical. Um, but this has been repeated many times through church history. We can have a view of something that's really not grounded in truth. And one side was in the wrong. And they were not able to come to a, a conclusion. They weren't able to agree. So therefore, it was decided that they would go up to Jerusalem. And how they dealt with this dispute is instructed to us when we have uh, disputes or differences. The first thing we see is they recognized the difference, they recognized this false teaching, and they dealt with the ones who were teaching it personally. So they, they pulled them aside and they talked to them about it and say, hey, what's this that you're teaching that we have to be circumcised to be saved? Bad doctrine, it's at least a sinful practice. It's like a, a cancer, aggressive one that needs to be cut out quickly. And people who have long been under false teaching or have uh, believed in falsehood, um, they need ongoing biblical instruction. It could be compared to chemotherapy, right? They need to continue being in the word and be around believers who are following Jesus and that we will be discipled together. 
they were unable to deter these men from Judea from their beliefs. So they said, well, we need to go to Jerusalem and talk to leaders in the church. And so this is the second thing they do. They decide they're going to involve other Christian leaders to weigh in on this decision, agreeing to submit to their decision. And so Paul and Barnabas, with the with other people, they traveled with these people from Judea to Jerusalem to raise the question. And I have to commend these men from Judea, right? The ones who were preaching, hey, Gentiles, you must be circumcised to be saved. They were willing to go with Paul and Barnabas, people that they weren't in agreement with at that time, to go to Jerusalem to say, whatever they say, we're going with it. Because it's at this exact point where many times there's been a disagreement, there hasn't been resolution, and that's where they part ways. Instead of saying, let's seek counsel from those who are in leadership in the church and submit to them. This is when we can depart from fellowship with one another because there's something that we're not in agreement about. And instead of humbling ourselves and discussing it, going to the scripture and then seeking other counsel, we just part ways. And then bitterness and contention can come in. So it's so good for us to be willing to seek the counsel of others and to submit to the word of God, what God has said. There's a lot of marriages. They've broken up because people weren't willing when there was hardness of heart and division to not seek counsel from outside, biblical, godly counsel, people who love God, to come to bear on their situation. So let's be willing to receive correction. Uh, Acts 15, verse 3, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Paul and Barnabas, they remain united with this group, the group that had a different belief, in their love for Jesus Christ and their faith in Christ, despite their critical differences concerning salvation. I mean, this is a major issue when you're dealing with a salvation topic. And while they're traveling, they're going through these cities, through Phoenicia, Samaria, and they remain quiet about their differences. They don't broadcast what, why they're heading to Jerusalem. The issues that are at work here, that's not really their agenda. They want to promote the things that God's doing among the Gentiles, that there's Gentiles coming to faith, the door's been opened, and they're joyful. The people aren't confused that they're talking to. They're rejoicing too. And so... This, this verse shows us that we can have different views, but we don't need to be divisive. There's a place where we can agree to disagree. Um, agreement concerning the essential doctrines of the gospel, that needs to be dealt with. So that's why they kept going to Jerusalem. Right? They didn't go, well, everyone's happy, everyone's fine, we can agree to disagree on this topic. No, this was a, this was a topic they needed to have resolution with. But on the way, they didn't need to be divisive and sow discord in the church. So we see the way they handled it is really uh, a gracious and good way. The questions wisely asked in Amos 3.3, Can two walk together unless they're agreed? Two people walking along the road, they have to decide on where they're going, how they want to get there, and the pace they want to keep. 
right? It's very easy to start walking ahead or say, you know what, I don't want to go that way, I want to go this way. Sure, we're trying to end up at the same end, but I want to go my way, you go yours. If we're not in agreement, we won't, it won't be long before we're separated by time or distance. And it's impossible to encourage or support one another when we are divided, when we're going in opposite directions. So when this question is posed to the believers in Jerusalem, they just gave a quick answer and it was all done, was it? No, not at all. In fact, some believing Pharisees upped the ante. The people who came from Judea said, it's important that the Gentiles to be saved be circumcised. Some of the believers who were Pharisees said, it's not only important that they're circumcised, they need to keep the law of Moses completely. And this is in Jerusalem. So the place that's supposed to have all the answers just to end the debate. Well, now you've got us, now you've just unearthed a problem that was actually happening in the church in Jerusalem that they weren't even aware of. So this disagreement that was presented in Antioch, now it raises its head by Pharisees who are in Jerusalem. So it wasn't a localized issue. It was something that had begun to permeate the church by Jews who had come from Judaism and had followed Christ. They held on to this belief that it was imperative that the Gentiles also keep the law. You guys like dealing with disputes? I don't. I would prefer to never have a dispute with anyone. I would I would seek to avoid them, just like I don't want to go to the doctor because of bad news. Like, oh, I'll need to go to a specialist, and and then I'll have to do this, and then I'll have to do, uh, just I'll just I'm fine, right? <laughs> I'll just deal with it. Uh, and I'm convinced that this dispute it wasn't the devil attacking the church, though he definitely had a hand in it. But God used it to restore the church, where there were issues that were under the surface in Jerusalem and in Antioch and in other places that hadn't been brought out yet. So God really redeemed this situation, didn't he? We'll see. And you'll, you'll see, when you choose to deal with disputes in a godly manner, it will have a positive effect on other people, not just you and the person that you're disputing with. It will have a reaching positive impact for the glory of God when we deal with disputes in God's way. Verse 6, now the apostles and elders came together to consider this manner. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore... Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. So after much dispute, Peter stands up, he addressed the believers. In Acts 10, we read of his interaction um, at Simon the Tanner's home where he's on the roof and God speaks to him through that vision and says, what I have cleansed you shall not call unclean or common. And that happened three times. And then um, the men from Cornelius' house came 
And Peter, led by the Holy Spirit, went with them. And he talked with them. And as he's speaking to them, they receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit, just as the Jews did on Pentecost. And so he's like, how can we forbid water from those who have been received the Holy Spirit even as we? And so they baptized them, though they were Gentiles. And Peter had been saying, it's, you know, it's not customary for Jews to hang out with Gentiles. This is really out of the ordinary. And God did an extraordinary thing that day. Ten years had passed since that time. And it wasn't through Paul of Tarsus or Barnabas of Cyprus that people received the gospel. This is key. It was Peter, the apostle, one chosen who walked with Jesus Christ, through whom the gospel came to these people. So the Jews are all perked up here. They're like, okay, well, it wasn't somebody from this other region. It's someone who had walked with Jesus. They were involved with the conversion of these Gentiles. But Peter, he doesn't appeal to his credibility or his background or his credentials. He doesn't say, well, you know, guys, I walk with Jesus. I, I pretty much know what's going on. He doesn't talk about himself. He says, God chose these Gentiles. God knows the heart. He has chosen them. He has brought them in. He acknowledged them by pouring out his spirit upon them. So it's God's work. It's not our choice who is receiving the Holy Spirit or not. God knows the heart. And then he questions those who, who said that circumcision and the law was critical to salvation. He says, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? There's been nobody but Jesus Christ who has kept the law, who has fulfilled the law. Because the law is incapable of saving. It can only condemn you. You can only fail at it. You cannot keep it. And he says, what, what, to what end would you put this yoke, this heavy burden upon the Gentiles when you haven't ever carried that weight? You guys familiar with the legend of King Arthur and the sword and the stone? It's a pretty basic story. Uh, there was a sword held by magic in this stone or anvil. And only the rightful king could make it budge because they had been long without a king. And so all these strong, strapping knights, they come from all miles around, and they're all going to, you know, you kind of try to get that sort of the stone. But nobody could do it. Only young Arthur, who is this gangly lad, he just drew it out as easy as anything. And they're like, whoa, that is the true king. God gave the law to Moses. Many Jews tried in vain to keep the law. Moses himself did not keep the law. He was not able to keep it. Jesus came to earth and fulfilled the law. He was the only one righteous to do so. Now, would it make any sense for King Arthur, having been revealed as the king, the, one, the only one who could draw it out of the, the stone, replace it and say, to acknowledge my rule, you must pull the sword from the stone. How could they? That would be ridiculous. And so he's saying, why would you load them with something that couldn't save them, that you weren't able to carry, to be saved? It's impossible. To serve Jesus is not about keeping the law of Moses because it existed to show us our need for the Savior, just like that sword in the stone, it said, you need a king. And when you try to pull on that and you're, you can't pull it out, you're not the king. 
There's one king and you're not it. That's the message it was saying as it sat in its solitary position year after year. And in the same way, no one could keep the law. No one could fulfill the law. It showed us that we need a savior and we need a king. And it's Jesus who is our king. And we live now on a higher plane than just keeping the law, but to love God and to love others as Jesus loves us. Peter says, But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Do you see how Peter swaps this around? He does not say, I believe the Gentiles will be saved like us. He says, we will be saved like them. By grace, through faith. He had seen the Holy Spirit come upon these believers, these Gentiles. And it was the same for any Jew who trusted Christ. Now let's not forget our massive Gentile bias in addressing this issue. I believe the scripture makes it clear that when people were saved who were Jews, they did not forsake the law. They did not abandon the law. We see that in Peter. Because even many years after Jesus left and went to heaven, he still ate kosher. Remember, he's on the roof. And he says, arise, Peter, kill and eat. He's like, oh, yeah, I put away the Mosaic law a long time ago. No, he was still following the law. He says, I have never eaten anything unclean. And then when he went to see Cornelius, he says, you know, I don't go around Gentiles. Here's a man saved by grace through faith. He's still keeping the law. He's still observing the law because the Jews were raised in the law. This was life to them. This was culture. This was everything. It was a life they rejoiced in and they wanted it for their children. They thought this is good for everyone. This is the right way to live. This is just the way they were thinking. I don't believe that Jews or Pharisees, when they came to Christ, uh, went out and bought shellfish and bacon because they felt they were missing out on something. No way. They observed the feast. They still ate kosher. They still went to synagogue and did the things they used to do. They were always conscious of the law. They knew it would offend other people. And so to keep from offending them, they could have a way to speak into their life. Now, as Gentiles, we're glad not to be saddled with the law of Moses, right? You're glad that you don't have those 600-plus laws to keep or to avoid. We're like, right on. So from our perspective, like, why would you keep the law in the first place? Because you can't, so why try? (laughs) But that's not the Jewish mindset. They didn't want to leave the law. They wanted others to keep it because it was good. So how were Gentiles saved? By faith or by the works of the law. It was by faith. The Jews could look back on their own scriptures and see that Abraham was rendered righteous before the law because he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So before the law came, he was deemed righteous because he trusted in God. He obeyed God. Turn to Galatians 2, please. Verse 15. Abraham was rendered righteous before he was circumcised. Because it was through faith. Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16. It says, We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, 
For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Salvation never came from the vain attempt to keep the law. You were justified through faith. And just to be justified means to be declared righteous. And the Jews are thinking like, well, whoa, hold on. Do away with the law. Are you saying the Ten Commandments are, we don't need to keep those anymore? Um, wouldn't that encourage sinful living if we move away from the law? Are you saying that the gospel gives me a free pass so I can commit adultery or murder without consequence? This is the way they were thinking. The law was intended to expose man's sinfulness, not justify his own righteousness. It's kind of like what they've done with the IQ test, which I think is pretty interesting. The IQ test was devised by a French, uh, I don't know if he's a psychiatrist or psychologist, but it was to gauge the, the, I guess, the level of ability of someone to learn on the low end to see how, how severe a retardation might have occurred and to know how best to educate them, to, to be able to teach them at their level. So it was a tool to say, how much can this person learn? How can we best teach them? But we have flipped it around, and now an IQ test is to see how smart you are. So it's been changed to say, now I can show how, how intelligent I am and my capacity for understanding, rather than its original intent to show how delayed your understanding was. And so the law worked in the same fashion. Instead of showing us how sinful we are, the, the, the Jews and others who tried to keep it were saying, look how righteous I am. Look how good I am. I, I gauge my spirituality because of the things I do and the things I don't do. So it was intended to expose sin. It was switched around because of our flesh to promote self and to show how good we are and how bad others are. It doesn't that strike us. <laughs> We're like, oh yeah. <laughs> Been there. Jesus said, it's written, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look with a woman to lust after her, you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. So we see this uh, standard that Jesus is setting is greater than the law. Because, you know, adultery under the law, it's very narrowly defined by the Jews. It can only be committed by physical sexual activity of a married woman or with a married woman. A married man can have sex with an unmarried woman. That's not adultery. Hmm. See, that's the thing about laws. You can kind of finagle and weasel around and redefine terms and, and miss the whole point of it. Being born again through the gospel, having the Holy Spirit within us, it makes us much more conscious of sin What's going inside my motives, the things I'm thinking about, the things I'm desiring, much more than the law ever could, which only governs externals. Can't touch the heart. But Jesus, he makes us, he changes us. 1 John 3.15, it says, if we hate our brother, we are murdering him in our heart. So God holds us to a higher standard. It's not that leaving the law makes us lawless. The standard to which we are held is far greater because it's that of the love of God and what he's shown us, the grace, purity on the inside. God is so wise. 
Acts 15, 12. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. People were were silent as Peter addressed them. And as they had a discussion, now James speaks up. Uh, he was the brother, not the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, because he had already been killed by the sword. This is believed to be James, the half-brother of Jesus, the one who penned uh, the New Testament book after his name. Half-brother being that his dad was Joseph and his mother was Mary. And James points out, the concept of Gentiles be part of the family of God, that's not a new idea. Amos had spoken about it previously and it was in Amos 9, 11, and 12. He was a prophet in the northern kingdom around 750 B.C., about 160 years before the fall of the temple in Jerusalem. The context of this passage is God affirming that his people would be forced into captivity, but he would again bring them out, return them to their land. So when James is saying this has been fulfilled or God has spoken about this, the temple, the second temple was still standing. And he's confirming the words of this prophecy, saying, see, God spoke about this, that he would return and bring us together here. I like what Guzik wrote in the Enduring Word Commentary. He says, when James quoted the prophecy in Amos 9, 11, and 12 about rebuilding the fallen tabernacle of David, he remembered that the Judaism of his day had fallen down in the sense that it had rejected its Messiah. Now God wanted to rebuild that work, focusing on a church made up of both Jew and Gentile. Jesus, too, spoke of other sheep, where he had sheep from another fold that he would bring in. You can turn there if you want. It's James 10, excuse me, John 10, starting at verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The Jews were God's chosen people by his grace. They were of that flock. But he says, I have other sheep that I need to bring and make them all one in me. Now, it's estimated that there are about a thousand different breeds of sheep in the world. Oh, okay, interesting. I like sheep facts. Um they're distinguished by different types of wool, the length of the wool. Uh, some have hair instead of wool. I was like, okay, cool. Uh, there's fat-tailed sheep. There's um, short-tailed varieties. There's prolific ones. There are primitive types, but they're all sheep. So I have a couple pictures. Uh, I went to the Agrodome in Rotorua, and they have this little pyramid here, and they trot in all the sheep, and they show you which you know, are the, the best ones. And right at the top of the pyramid, can you guess? It's hard to see. Merino. Now, why would that be at the top? 
the wool, right? The wool is second to none, very valuable. It's the most, um, I guess, valuable sheep if you want to farm them. If you go to the next one, um, if you notice now, there's a dog on top of the sheep. So they have these dogs, and they're running around on top of the sheep, and the sheep are all very conditioned to to understand that's okay. <laughs> um, so these varieties, this is just a handful. Now, if you can go to the next one, this is a fat-tailed sheep. It's an extreme example. You know that 25% of the sheep in the world are thought to be fat-tailed sheep. Now, most sheep, they have their tails docked. But these particular sheep, um, and this is, like I said, this is a pretty extreme example. They, they're everywhere. And uh, usually in Asia, and that would be a source of it's basically just a fat deposit on the tail that they use for cooking and stuff. So highly sought after, delicate and delicious, I'm told. Um, you know, there's no pyramids in, in God's flock. The Jews are kind of like, hey, we're the merino sheep. We, we're the ones chosen by God. We're the privileged ones. God's like, no, I'm, I'm making one fold, and I'm the shepherd over everybody. And there's all these sheep that you don't know about, fat-tailed sheep. You know, they live far away, and I'm bringing them in because they're mine. And when I call to them, they're going to answer and come. And they're mine just as much as you. And it's not because you keep the law, but because I love you, because I've chosen you. And how good it is to be God's sheep, whatever kind of sheep we are. Yes, there's love. There's good grazing. In for those who trust and follow Jesus. All right, Acts 15, verse 18. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. James affirmed God knew what he was saying in Amos. Um, that he knew salvation would come to both Jew and Gentile through faith in Christ. And he says, let's not trouble them by adding a heavy burden upon them to keep the law. But let's direct their conduct to live in a way that is loving towards the Jews who have come from this background. So they drafted a letter. Gentiles, by their conduct and their customs, would be offensive to Jews and drive them potentially away from the gospel. They weren't to do that. They were to walk in love towards their their Gentile brothers as well as the Jewish ones. And these commands largely deal with with eating habits. um, And out of love for God, they were to observe this with not eating meat offered to idols from things strangled and blood. And they were to abstain from what the law called sexual immorality. The Gentiles were very liberal in this area. And that's the thing that Paul often hit on in his letters. He says, hey, guys, don't you know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? You know, flee fornication. Remember, the law is still good and true. It's still a a gauge of what's right. It's a standard, a righteous standard. And... Leviticus 17 and 18, you can read, if you if you want, about uh, food preparation, the way they would eat, and also sexual immorality. And it defines 
incest, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, as immoral. And uh, the Jews were not supposed to claim the Gentiles need to be circumcised or keep the, the law of Moses to be saved, but also the Gentiles were not to behave in a way that antagonized the Jews. They're like waving, kind of, kind of flaunting their freedom, so to speak, saying, oh, I can eat bacon, sorry you can't. You know, just little snide comments and stuff that we, that are so natural to us. Um, you know, kind of lording it over them that we're Gentiles and we have these freedoms that you don't feel like you have and you're missing out, man. Guzik also pointed out something Gentiles don't consider. If the decision was one that did not have to be Jewish to be a Christian, it must also be said clearly that one did not need to forsake the law of Moses to be a Christian. You ever thought about that? It was a new thought to me. Oh, yeah. You don't have to keep the law to be saved. It's not sinful to keep the law if you're so led by the Spirit. What's wrong with that if you want to hold to that law? We're given liberty, freedom from the requirements of law, freedom from the Holy Spirit to live as he directs us. At the same time, we're not to make our personal convictions requirements for salvation. And that's where the Jews had it wrong, where they said, hey, you should be circumcised to be saved. That was the problem. So verse 21, it emphasized the reasoning, reasoning behind the commands. All Jews were well instructed in these areas. These were areas that were very important and intrinsic to their views. So this was a way for the Gentiles to act in a way that's loving towards them, understanding where they're coming from. We'll see that next week the message was sent out. It was very well received. People rejoiced. And, and think about it. If you're trying not to offend someone who keeps the law, as a Gentile, completely uninitiated in the law, where do you even start with that? Like, how do I not offend this person when they have all these beliefs and practices that I don't even know? So reducing the directives to four basic things, that's a really good start. And they were rejoicing, all right, I can be loving towards my brother or to Jews who don't know the Lord by by considering them in these choices, not to be saved, but to show the love of God and his grace. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. The context of this passage is Paul reminding his readers they were once disobedient. They lived to satisfy their own lusts. Being born again in Christ, it brought a changed condition in their hearts and it was to affect their conduct as well. So Christianity is not just supposed to be a belief system in our heads. It's actually supposed to impact our decisions and the way we live. So Ephesians 4, starting, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is merciful. He loves us. By, and by his grace, not by the keeping of the law, we're born again through faith in him. We have this grace 
through the gospel now, but in ages to come. It's like for all eternity, we will be a proclamation of his love, uh, a testimony to all that while we were sinners, he, he called us out of sin. He redeemed us and washed us clean. Do we deserve to be raised up from the pit of our own lust and greed and pride? No, we don't deserve that. But God has called us out. He has cleansed us by his grace. The keeping of the law never promised any such rewards. Can you think of any time in the law where it gives you an eternal inheritance or reward reserved in heaven for you if you are circumcised? No. Nothing. It could only condemn you. It could not save you. It didn't talk about that. It just talked about when you get it wrong, this is a sacrifice you have to do. And if, and at a point, you're either going to die for your sin or you're going to be outside of the camp and cut off from the congregation. But not so with our Savior. He's the one who has come to us and he's loved us and he's cleansed us and he's the one who draws near to us. He calls out as, our name as the Good Shepherd and he seeks us out. He knows where we'll be and he calls our name and bids us return to him. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. No one can claim entry into heaven based upon their good works or their effort, their sacrifice. Faith in Christ is the only way to justification and righteousness before God. And even our faith is a gift from God. Even our faith is a gift that we receive when we look to him. And if, in, if you could get into heaven through your works or your sacrifices, there would be room for boasting, wouldn't there? Like, well, what'd you have to do to get in? Oh, well, you know, I crawled on broken glass and I gave away two million to this, you know, foundation and i've done this and this and oh that's pretty good how about you where where's the focus on god and his goodness then so boasting is excluded there's no room for boasting because none of us deserve it none of us deserve the grace of god we're not saved by good works but we are his workmanship we are his he he has made us it's like i guess the picture that is is the production of fabric He's the one who has knit us together. He's the one who has put us together in the body. It's his body. He's created it. He thought it all through, and he's included us. He created the heavens and earth by the words of his mouth. And through faith in the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, we are saved. We are justified. He says, known to God from eternity are all his works. God knew that the church composed of Jews and Gentiles would be his workmanship. And it says there he's prepared good works for us to do. You know, work is not a bad thing. Sometimes we look down on work. It kind of has a bad reputation. We only work so we can get stuff, but not really. There's work that's deeply satisfying because God has made us to, to work and to labor for him. Jesus was glad to work. He says, hey, I've, got, I've only got the day to work. Night's coming when no one can work. When the Jews asked Jesus how to do the works of God, do you remember what he said? 
We want to do the works of God. How do we do them? Believe on him who he has sent. Are you someone that goes, yeah, and? Come on, tell me the real thing. Like, let's get to the, let's get to the nitty gritty. Hit me with something. No, really. Believe on the Lord. Trust in him. Actually have faith demonstrated through obedience. That's how you do the work of God. When his spirit is within you and he guides you into all truth, you walk in that truth as he strengthens you to do so. So having believed, what commands are there to obey? Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He quoted law. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Then he laid down a new commandment. In John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It wasn't by circumcision, it wasn't by eating kosher that people would be known as Christians, but by their love for one another. That's our identity. It's the love of God. And if that's not good enough for you, then you don't understand it. That's all I can say. Because if your steps are being governed by the law, by the love of God, it's far greater than any love. Phew, I'm really messing up. It's greater than any law. Like, you say you're sorry to that person. Sorry. What if your heart is sorry towards that person? And because you love them, you don't need someone to tell you to tell them. I'm sorry. You'll care about them, and you'll reach out to them far beyond words. That's what love is. Jesus came and demonstrated his love on the cross by dying for us while we were sinners. He demonstrated his love. He didn't just say, I love you. He showed us how he loved us, and he's continued to. The law is good. It serves the function God intended to reveal our sin, our need for a Savior. But as Christians, we're called to a higher plane, to love one another as he loves us, to let God's love govern our thoughts, our deeds, considering others more important than self. It was love that led Jesus to walk up Calvary's hill. Not a law. It was love for you and for me. Legalism, liberalism, they're awful exchanges for the salvation that we have by grace through faith because they can't save you. When disputes occur, let's do as these believers did, how they sought the Lord, his word, and to walk humbly before one another. As God's workmanship, this is the work God's called us to, to love. And it may not seem like a, a grand thing, but there's nothing greater than the love of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us salvation through Jesus Christ by grace through faith and not of ourselves. Lord, there's no way that I could save myself. And thank you that you've made a way for everyone to be saved who will call out to you, who will repent and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Thank you for this example that we've read of how to deal with disputes today. And also, Lord, show us if there's areas where we have gone back under the law, thinking that we have to do something to please you, uh, not receiving your forgiveness, or how we're placing the law on others and we're making demands of them that you have never made. 
Lord, I pray that you would cause us, even as those Gentiles did, to walk in love towards their Jewish brethren, that they would not seek to do anything offensive, but they'd, they'd consider where they're coming from. And Lord, may we too be mindful of the feelings of others, uh, that we could be gracious and compassionate and merciful and long-suffering and show all those characteristics that we see in you. Thank you, Lord, that your love trumps law and that you have given us a way through Jesus to have new life and an abundant life. We just praise you and thank you, Lord, because you're awesome. And thank you for my brothers and sisters here today. Thank you for the word that you've given to all of us and pray that you would quicken us by your spirit to trust you and obey in Jesus' name. Amen.